And I invite you as you're seated this morning to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. And uh, as you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, in our Sunday school class, our kids have been learning about being God's servants. And kids, in the very first lesson, we learned that we're all valuable, uh, that we're valuable because God loves us, and we're also valuable because God has uh, given each of us an important role in the body of Christ. And, and just so that you can carry this into your own home, parents, uh, we spent a very brief time asking, like, what are you good at? And some kids said, I'm good at reading. So I suggested they could serve the church by reading the Bible to younger kids who can't read yet. Uh, some kids said they were good at playing. And so I suggested that they could help the church by uh, inviting people to playing with them and especially playing with kids who aren't being played with. And kids, do you remember why this is important? It's important because of our memory verse. But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. In other words, God puts you here in this body and he's given you the gifts he's given you on purpose so that we'll all be healthy. And as an aside, as an aside, I would encourage you to ask your kids and also to ask yourself, what gifts has God given to me? And then ask, how can I use them to help the church? That's a good thing to think about because it's something God says he's done. No one is here by accident and no one is ungifted for service in Christ's body. Now I bring all of this up because at the heart of our message this morning are these two ideas, being part of the body of Christ and being gifted for service in the body of Christ. But they show up a little differently than what I was just talking about because what Paul talks about this morning is a gift of service every Christian is given. It's the gift to forgive. Because we've been forgiven by Jesus, we have been equipped to forgive other people. And this is important because the church is very much like a physical body. And this side of glory, bodies get hurt. And when one part of our body gets hurt, it affects the whole, doesn't it? Even a paper cut involves the whole body, at least at first. You get cut. And then you suddenly stop thinking about whatever it was you were thinking about or doing whatever you were doing, and you focus on the cut. You grab the cut. You say, ow! Maybe you suck on it for a second. Mm. It's just a paper cut. But for a few moments, everything in your body has been affected because it hurts. Right? Pain affects the body. In our passage, Paul talks about pain a lot. You're going to hear it. Only it's not physical pain. It's spiritual pain. It's emotional pain. I think it's even mental pain. It's the pain of a broken relationship, and it's affected the entire body of Christ at Corinth. And what Paul is striving after is that the body would heal this pain by giving the gift of forgiveness the gift that every member of Christ can give and the gift that every church of Christ needs so that we can experience unity in Christ and maybe even more importantly, 
so that we can see Jesus in each other. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 11. We're going to pray, and then we'll consider four things briefly from our passage this morning. The painful punishment by the majority, the joy of forgiveness, the freedom of reconciliation, and then finally outwitting Satan's designs. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's give now our full attention to God's word. God says to us here, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not so much to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word of our God will last forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word, which we know is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the division, if it were possible, of soul and spirit. Father, we need your word to divide our hearts uh, so that it would so that we would know the parts in our lives that are against Christ so that we might repent of them and turn to you. We need your word to show us how to cling to him. We need it to know how to follow him and to live for him and to see him. And so, Father, we therefore pray that you would send your spirit with your word uh, so that we might hear it this morning, believe it, and understand it. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word by faith may it all be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing I want to look at in this passage is what Paul means when he says in verse 6, for this punishment by the majority is enough. Uh, for a long time, I thought that what Paul meant by uh, this punishment by the majority was some form of church discipline, like uh, suspension from the Lord's table, excommunication, something like that. I'm very confident I've said that from this pulpit before. It's not a dumb idea. Uh, it makes sense to connect the ideas of discipline and punishment. Uh, but while we definitely can extend Paul's point here to cover things like church discipline, I just don't think that that's actually what Paul is talking about directly here. Uh, I think he's talking about something much more common. Something that if you've been a member or an attender of the same church for six months or a year, you're going to have some experience with. What is it? Well, let's look here. 
So in all the verses before this, Paul is very much concerned about pain. In verses 1 through 4, Paul talks about how he didn't want to make another painful visit to the Corinthians. So like we talked about two weeks ago, he changed his plans in order to spare them pain. In verse 3, which we'll look at uh, closer shortly, Paul also talks about how he didn't simply want to spare them from pain, but himself from pain. Paul says, And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. We don't often think of the apostles as being human beings with emotions, (laughs) but Paul was afraid not only of hurting them, but of being hurt by them. Then in verse 4, Paul says he's afraid that the pain they've experienced in their relationship together will keep them from knowing and experiencing the depth of his love for them. He says, I wrote to you out of much affliction, verse 4, and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you all. Then in verse 5, Paul continues on with the same theme, only this time he talks about how the pain he's received from some members of the Corinthian church have not affected him as deeply as it has other members of the Corinthian church. You see, the context isn't church discipline. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's pain. It's relational pain. Now, the Greek word Paul uses for pain tells us a lot about what kind of pain he has in mind here. Uh, This word appears 26 times in the New Testament, 12 times in the book of 2 Corinthians. So a little less than half. The next highest usage, which I think is informing Paul here, is in Matthew's Gospel. And I think the time that most clearly shows what this word for pain means is when Matthew, the gospel writer, the disciple of Jesus, is reflecting on the moment when Jesus tells his disciples, one of you will betray me. And Matthew says they all felt pain. Which I think shows us that the best way to translate this Greek word probably isn't pain, It's more like heartache. The feeling you have when your heart has been hollowed out by betrayal or meanness or apathy or in the disciples' case, cowardice. It's the feeling of looking at your friend or your spouse or your brother or your sister across a hole in your relationship that you or they have dug and not seeing any way across it. That's what Paul means by pain. And when Paul talks about it as punishment, what he means is knowing that this separation is something you've caused. And in that sense, it's something that you deserve and you don't know how to get across the hole. Now, what's interesting about this particular situation is that those who've been pained are not necessarily the same people who've been sinned against. I know this might sound weird, 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 but this kind of thing can happen in churches and it can happen in families. It can happen in friendships. So for example, say you have a brother and a sister who have a mutual friend 
And then one day, seemingly out of the blue, that friend says something or does something mean to the sister or mean to the brother, right? The sister has pain, but so does the brother. Not because the brother has been sinned against, but because he's upset on behalf of his sister. And now that friendship is broken with both the brother and the sister. Think about how you feel when someone yells at your spouse or when someone mistreats your kids. Even if they're your close friends, do you stay close friends with them after that treatment? Isn't there a heartache hole that opens up even when you were the one who wasn't directly sinned against? It happens this way in churches too. Uh, Pastors, elders, and deacons are usually loved by the congregation. There's respect there, mutual care, there's love, like the kind I think we have for one another. Uh, The kind that I pray gets deeper and deeper every, every week and year. And this hasn't happened here, at least not in my tenure, but we probably all know of instances, though, where someone comes into a church and just totally mistreats the pastor or one of the elders or one of the deacons, maybe lies about them, maybe makes fun of them, just isn't kind to them. That treatment doesn't just hurt the person's relationship with that church leader. It hurts its their relationship with the church that loves that pastor, that elder, that deacon. And this is what I think Paul is talking about when he says in verse 5, Now if someone has caused me pain, he has not caused it so much to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. And I think this reading makes sense of what Paul goes on to say. Because this person has acted poorly and sinned, there's pain all around. There's this shared heartache hole in their lives. There's a chasm between the offender and the church and between the offender and Paul because of that hole between the sinner and the congregation. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more in our third point. But the point right now is to notice that this is the pain. This is the hurt Paul is talking about. This is the punishment by the majority that the offender is experiencing, the heartache of knowing that they've ruined relationships in the church that matter to them. But this is the church of Jesus. Pain is not the final word. Heartache is not the final word in the church of Jesus. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, God making all things new. Those are the final words. And because those are the final words, Paul calls on the congregation to pragmatically, practically, tangibly live out of the gospel that they've believed and the hope of Jesus that he has put in their hearts. And he does this by calling them to give the joy of forgiveness and the freedom of reconciliation to all involved. Uh, So let's move on to our second point, which is the joy of forgiveness. And this point comes from verses 7 through 8. But since verse 7 is in the middle of a sentence, I'm going to start reading from verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow 
So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Uh, Notice the way that this punishment ends. It doesn't end with a formal announcement in front of the congregation. It doesn't end with a letter. It doesn't end with an email. It ends by the congregation turning to give this person forgiveness and comfort. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that the way that the Hebrew language talks about repentance, and by the way, this is the language that Paul read the Old Testament in. It's the language he used when he preached in the synagogues, when he preached to the Jews he was giving the gospel to before moving to the Gentiles. So this is very much part of just the way he thinks. The way the Hebrew language describes repentance is to turn around, to turn. And the idea is that you were following God, And then you got off the path through sin. So you need to turn and go back to the path of righteousness so that you can keep walking with Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that though this pain, though this heartache hole that we've been talking about was originally opened up by this person's actions, it's being kept open. It's remaining unhealed by the congregation's refusal to forgive him and comfort him. And what Paul is saying is that the congregation is in the wrong because they are not forgiving this person and they need to turn, they need to repent and forgive. And this shows us a couple of things that are really good for us to see. The first thing that's good for us to see is that Paul here is very much worried about the offender the sinner not being welcomed back in the church. Maybe that's surprising. Paul is the one who's been sinned against. The congregation is the one who's been hurt on his behalf by this person's treatment of him. But his concern is that the offender who knows that he is screwed up and sinned be welcomed back. Now, at this point, I think it's important to add that most likely here, the offender has confessed his sin and is showing repentance. And I say that because at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul will talk about his fear that when he comes again, there will still be people who are unrepentant for their sins that he's previously called them out on and that uh, some kind of harsher response will be needed. You don't see that mentioned here at all. Here you see Paul's concern that a repenting sinner is not being brought back into the congregation. Why is Paul concerned about that? It's because this is the church. The church is the place where sinners find forgiveness and welcome and love in the name of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus gives, right? That's what he gives us. And Paul recognizes that here the church isn't following Christ on the path of righteousness and treating this person the way that Jesus Christ himself has treated them. In Matthew's gospel, there's another instance of the word pain that appears in a very familiar parable. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. And that's the story Jesus tells of a servant who's called in front of his master to pay a debt of 10,000 talents. One talent is worth 20 years wages. 20 years wages. So 10 talents, 
excuse me, so 10,000 talents is a debt that would take him 200,000 years to pay off. 200,000 years. The servant asks for mercy, and he's granted it. He's forgiven the debt completely. That forgiven servant then goes out and finds another servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii is a day's wage. So that's a pretty big debt. That's a hundred days worth of work, right? It's a third of a year. But it's not 200,000 years worth of work. That servant asks the forgiven servant, begs the forgiven servant for mercy. The forgiven servant says, no. And there are other servants who see this. And Matthew says that those servants who watch that forgiven servant not show forgiveness to someone else, that they were pained. Same word. Watching this forgiven servant who knew the profound, undeserved joy of forgiveness treat someone with unforgiveness opened a hole in their relationship. And just to show you how connected and rad the Bible is and just how like inter interrelated all the New Testament authors are, the event that prompted Jesus to tell this parable about the impact of unforgiveness on someone's relationship with a larger community is this conversation. <clears throat> and then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus says, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. As often as he repents, you must forgive him. Don't you think that Paul has this parable in mind and this command in mind when he says in verse 9, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Obedient to what? of giving the joy of Christ's forgiveness that we have received to each other again and again and again and again, 77 times, so that Christ's forgiveness and grace can bridge the heartache hole that sin creates. And the second thing to notice quickly is that Paul then calls on the church to show this forgiveness through comfort and reaffirmed love, uh, you do not comfort people or reaffirm your love for them with thoughts or private decisions. You do it through hugs and handshakes and invitations to join you and words of welcome. Hey, come on over. Would you like to have dinner with us? We're glad to see you. Thanks for being here. You do it the way that Jesus did for his disciples and who does it for us in the church throughout the gospels and here every week when every week we come as sinners and he says, come to my table. I'm glad you're here. Let me feed you. All right, our third point quickly, the freedom of reconciliation. Uh, I'm going to keep this very brief, but I think this is a very powerful point. This is the point that has impacted me most this week, uh, actually the last two weeks. So please pay attention to it. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. This is one of those statements 
that's just way too easy to read over quickly. And, uh, and I'm going to be honest, I was last week years old when I finally stopped and listened to what Paul was saying here. After reading through the Bible, how many times have I read through the Bible? 23? Something like that? It's the first time I ever really paid attention to what Paul says here. Here's the first thing Paul is saying. He's saying, the first thing he's saying is, I've already forgiven him. See, the way that Paul says this shows that Paul has already made the choice to forgive this man. You can't choose to make someone forgive. Paul is basically telling the church, I've already forgiven him, and now I'm inviting you to join me in making that same choice. But that's not the most profound thing. The most profound thing is not seeing Paul say, I forgive this sinner, join me in forgiveness. The second thing Paul is saying by putting it this way, and the most profound thing is this, he's showing the Corinthian church that they have some say in the kind of relationship that Paul can ultimately have with this brother. Paul is saying, if you don't forgive him, then our relationship can't really be healed fully and totally, even if I've forgiven him, because his place in the church won't really be restored our life together in the body will be affected by this open wound, just like a foot is affected by a cut on the hand. Essentially, Paul is saying, you're holding my heart and his heart in your hands. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Your decision to forgive or not will determine how close our relationship can be. If you decide not to forgive him, then he and I will continue to be in pain and will continue to experience some form of separation from each other. There will always be a distance between us in some way. But if you decide to forgive him, then we can have our chasm bridged by the grace of Christ and experience, experience the profound healing that Jesus wants to bring. And so here's an important lesson. Our forgiveness decisions very rarely are just about us. They affect our sons and our daughters and our spouses and our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the body of Christ is connected, right? Right? When we deny forgiveness to others, when we don't work to reconcile with repentant sinners, our decision can hinder and maybe even sometimes, as Paul was sort of indicating in this case, stop reconciliation with other members in the church. But when we give forgiveness to repentant sinners in Jesus' name, it opens the door to reconciliation and as Paul, I think, is saying here, even helps bring about reconciliation. At the end of verse 10, Paul says, Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And just real fast, when Paul talks about how his past actions of forgiveness have been for their sake in the presence of Christ, what he literally says is, for their sake in the face of Christ. And I know the meaning is the same. It seems a little pedantic to be literal. But I say that because... In the next chapters, 
Paul will talk about how the grace of God shined in Moses' face and how the grace of Jesus is meant to shine from our lives through the forgiveness of Jesus that we give to one another. And so what Paul is actually implying here, what he's actually saying is, when we obey Jesus and in his name and by his grace, prayerfully forgive repentant sinners again and again and again, the grace of Jesus shines in the darkness of our pain. It illuminates his love within the congregation. And it allows us all to see Jesus do again what only he can do, which is take broken things and make them new. Take dead things and make them alive. Take a church this diverse and make it one. Giving the gift of Jesus is how the face of Jesus shines in our lives to one another. Final point. Super quick. Paul says that shining the forgiveness of grace to Jesus to one another is important. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We don't talk a lot about Satan, but this is important. The name Satan means the adversary, the one who stands against God. And his purposes. And at the heart of God's purpose is restoring what the fall and our sin and death have broken by giving us back a life of peace and love and joy with one another and with God's creation and with God forever through the sacrifice of Christ given for the forgiveness of our sins. When we decide to withhold forgiveness from repenting sinners, when we decide that the cost to us is too high, that the pain is too much, the sacrifice too great, we are not only like the unmerciful servant who was forgiven 200,000 years of debt but wouldn't forgive 100 days worth. We're also being outwitted by Satan Because we are joining him as he stands against what Jesus is doing. As we stand against God giving his forgiveness to his people. And we are believing Satan's lies that God's promises in Christ are really not, as Paul said in chapter 1, yes and amen. We're believing Satan's lies that God can't help us. We're believing him when he tells us God won't help us. And we're believing him when he says, you know, you can forgive, but you're not really, no one's going to see Jesus in this. All you're going to have is pain and heartache and emptiness for nothing because Christ isn't really there. He's not really with you. He's not really there to help you. And when we believe Satan and follow him as he works to bring enmity and strife and pain and spiritual fatigue and break down faith and all the things that he's been doing since the garden that we see him doing so clearly in the book of Job, we are standing contrary to Christ. But Paul tells us that we have an opportunity to outwit Satan and to shine the face of Jesus into the lives of those around us by giving forgiveness. 
My friends, surely there are people who need to be forgiven in your life. Who need to be comforted and reassured with words and deeds of your love for them in Christ. Let's obey Christ's command. Let's be obedient in everything. Let's hear Jesus. Let's forgive 70 times 7. And let's help each other obey through the encouragement and prayer and fellowship of Christ that he's given us by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for healing the whole of alienation that kept us apart by forgiving us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, please work that same grace of forgiveness out into our relationship so that we can see the face of Christ shining in each other's lives. And so not only see, but taste the goodness of your grace as it brings the joy of forgiveness and the healing of reconciliation more fully into our congregation. We ask this for the sake of Jesus, who we know has given us the privilege of being his body on earth while he reigns in heaven, waiting to return and restore all things and make them new. We pray this in his name. Amen.